It's great to see you all this morning. We, we picked that um, song that we were singing just there. really a fit with uh, a theme in Hebrews that we're going to be starting today and continuing through the, the summer months. In, in Hebrews 6, um, it talks about Christ being our sure and steady anchor. And we hope as we um, go through Hebrews chapter 11, we will see just that and, and find again and again our security in Christ. Let me pray just now as we come to God's word. Our Father, we are so thankful to be around your word again. We are so thankful for Christ, who is a sure and steady anchor for our souls. Uh, Father, as we come to your word again this morning, we ask that we would see Christ for who he truly is. We pray that your spirits would work to bring the truth of Christ to our hearts, to our minds, that our souls would leave more satisfied in him this morning. This we pray in his name. Amen. As I said last week and just there, we're, we're beginning a series on Hebrews chapter 11. Now, why study Hebrews 11? Well, simply to give us encouragement to keep going in the Christian life. In a marathon, it is often the support of the crowds that keep the exhausted runners going. Now, I don't know this from personal experience, but uh, one year my sister was doing the Belfast Marathon, and she said after that the most difficult part of the run was the parts where there was no one there cheering and applauding and keeping you going. Hebrews 11 is sometimes known as heroes of the faith. And I'm not sure this is overly helpful, because I don't think we are so much to be in awe of these so-called heroes, but rather we're to see ordinary men and women who kept faith in God to the very end. And as we look at these ordinary men and women of faith over the next weeks, like supporters at a marathon, they keep us going and allow us to know that we too are able to make it to the end. And so before we, we really get into Hebrews 11, I want to use this morning really to help us grasp some of the main themes through Hebrews through Hebrews, and help us really just to build some context for a study in Hebrews 11. So we will read the chapter through at the end, but for now we're going to look at some kind of big themes in Hebrews and help build a little context. Now if you've studied Hebrews before, you will have discovered there is no certainty over who the author is which in one way makes it stand out from other New Testament books. Commentators show no confidence with this matter, and I don't have any further wise suggestions to make. But Hebrews comes as a word of exhortation. We see that in Hebrews 13. Many think of Hebrews as a sermon intended to be read to a congregation. And certainly as you read through, it feels sermonic as the writer exhorts God's people. Hebrews contains 35 direct Old Testament 
quotes along with other references. And this focus on the Old Testament gives us an indicator to its original audience. The audience clearly had a good understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so I believe that that Hebrews was addressed to Jewish converts feeling the pressure to revert to their old Jewish faith with its customs and practices. We see that these were believers who were discouraged in faith, even tempted to drift away, Hebrews 2.1. Some were tempted to abandon the faith altogether, Hebrews 3.12. Some were just lazy regarding their faith, Hebrews 6.12. And some were lacking in confidence, shrinking back from faith, and tempted to hide their faith, Hebrews 10. 35. So if you've ever felt or you feel spiritually discouraged or lethargic, Hebrews is for you. There's much in Hebrews that that is difficult to to maybe grasp and get our heads around, but one clear message comes to discouraged believers. Keep your focus on Jesus Christ. And this exhortation comes to God's people, both by warning and a call to hold fast. There are five warnings in Hebrews, and I will briefly point each one out to us. And as I do that, bear in mind, these warnings were delivered to Christian believers And you will notice the writer uses we with the warnings, that is, he's including himself among those who need encouragement to continue in the faith. The first first warning is Hebrews chapter 2. Look that up with me. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. So we begin, therefore, now the writer has just been speaking about Christ's superiority over angels, so we must pay close attention um, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that is the law given through Moses, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the writer has just built the picture of Christ's superiority over the angels and in light of that he goes to the Old Testament and he says yes the law of Moses was to be obeyed it was to be taken seriously there was retribution for every disobedience but if that was taken seriously how much more seriously should you heed the words of Jesus Christ the Son of God that's the first warning second warning turn over to chapter 3 
And we'll read a little bit from verse 7. Now, this idea really continues right through on into the middle of chapter 4. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Again, the writer is drawing on the Old Testament, referring to God's people in the wilderness after they had been delivered from Egypt. And that whole period was was really like a test of faith. Will God's people persevere in faith in God and in his promise? They had so many good reasons to continue to trust God, to trust that he would do what he said, that he would bring them to the promised land, but they failed to do that. And here the writer, he's urging the believers... Don't become hard of heart. Don't stop trusting in what God has said he will do. Third warning, turn over to chapter 5, verse 11. Again, this this thought continues on into chapter 6, but let me just read chapter 5, verse 11, a few verses from there. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since ye have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So you see what's happened here. The believers, they've become spiritually dull because they have been neglecting the word of God. And the writer's saying here, you you need to get into the word of God. You need to be reading and understanding because otherwise you're in danger of having unfruitful lives. Warning four, this time we'll turn over to chapter 10 and verse 26, 26 through to 31. So warning four, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So we see here sin that is rejecting and rebelling against Christ. 
again, the writer takes us to the Old Testament, and he makes that same comparison. If there was punishment from rejecting the law of Moses, how much greater punishment will there be for rejecting God's Son, Jesus Christ? It's like Israel's judgment in the Old Testament, those who did not enter the promised land, and perhaps later on, those who were exiled, it's like this earthly judgment acted as a type of the judgment that will come. The final warning, um, warning five, is Hebrews 12. Again, turn over there with me. Hebrews 12, chapter, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 25. Hebrews 12. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Again, the writer's drawing on the Old Testament. There were consequences for rebelling and rejecting God's word when it came through Moses at Sinai. There will be greater consequences for rebelling against and rejecting God's word through Jesus Christ. And again, we're pointed forward here to the final day when Christ will come to bring final salvation and judgment. So there we have five warnings addressed to believers as a means of urging them to persevere with faith in Christ Now, to balance the five warnings, I want to point out to you five encouragements to hold on. As I said, the writer encourages to persevere through warnings and uh, and this exhortation to hold on. So I'll point out five of those. Hebrews 3, 6. Don't worry about looking these ones up. Hebrews 3, 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Hebrews 3.14 For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4.14 Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 6, 18, in light of the unchanging nature of God, the writer says we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
warnings. Don't do this because you can expect this. But hold on fast because this is what God is doing. And in all of this, the writer is building and building a picture of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Don't do this because Christ is great. Hold on because Christ is worthy. And so I want to turn now and help us to see the focus of Jesus Christ. If we were to sum up the book of Hebrews, it would be Christ is better. Christ is better and greater and superior to anything that came before. And it is essential these believers see the true worth and greatness of Jesus Christ. It is very clear from the very beginning, that the author wants his readers to be drawn to Jesus. Turn back to the very beginning, and we'll read Hebrews chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> Long ago, and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now notice the contrasts that are made here. The prophets were many. God's Son is one. And the final, last word of God. The prophets were merely human. God's Son is deity and has pointed the heir of God over all things. The prophets pointed to God in some way. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint. Of God. Now, these opening words really show us how the letter will work. The writer takes Old Testament texts, shows us their fulfillment in Jesus, and allows us to see these very stark contrasts. So I want to take two themes and show you how the writer does this. We're going to take covenant and high priest. These themes do weave throughout, but for covenants, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And in verses 8 to 12, we have the longest Old Testament reference, 
which comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, the word covenant is an agreement that establishes the basis for interaction between two parties. And so here we are speaking about how man interacts with God. And the writer is contrasting the old covenant made through Moses with the new covenant made through Jesus Christ. The writer tells us in verse 6 that the covenant is more excellent than the old. It is a better covenant and it is enacted on better promises. Now, it's not that the old covenant was bad and the new covenant is good. No, the old covenant was good as given by God, but the new covenant is better. So let's notice how the new covenant is better. Now, this passage in Hebrews 8, as I say, is, is quoting Jeremiah and is referring back to the agreement um, between Moses and God. And in Exodus 19... As God spoke to Moses about the agreement of the covenant, we see an emphasis on if you will. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. But the people couldn't do that. They couldn't obey God's voice. They couldn't keep his covenant. And as we read Jeremiah, the focus on this new promised covenant is on I will. God saying, I will accomplish this. I will do this and you will be my people. We will be God's people and stay as God's people because of what God will do himself. In Exodus 24, Moses wrote down all the words that God had spoken. In the New Covenant, we see God says he will put his law on his people's minds and hearts. You see, in the Old, there was a focus on external obedience. In the New, there was a focus on the transformation that God himself will bring from within. The mediator of the old covenant was Moses, and the covenant was confirmed through the blood of an animal. The mediator of the new covenant is Jesus Christ, and the covenant was confirmed through his own blood. You remember as Jesus shared that last meal with his disciples before his death. And he took bread, as we will do this morning, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and again, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new Covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We read in Hebrews 9 that we see that Christ's blood secured an eternal redemption. 
that through his one sacrifice, God's people have secured eternal forgiveness and an eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ has accomplished what Moses and the blood of animals could never do. So you see, the new covenant through Jesus Christ, it is better and greater and superior. The old covenant was there to prepare for the new, which would last forever. And the writer saying to God's people, don't go back to an inferior covenant. Look what God has done. He promised a new covenant through the prophet. God has accomplished the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Keep your minds and hearts on the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ and keep going. So that's the new covenant. Now, I said the other theme I want to draw our attention to is Jesus as our high priest. In the old covenant, God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle and, and, and how and God's people were to approach him in worship. And key to worship was the, the priesthood. Now in this new covenant, Jesus is presented as our high priest. You'll see him referred to as priest and, and high priest, and it's worth noting that these terms are interchangeable. But Hebrews highlights Christ's work as, as high priest on earth and in heaven. And actually, the writer to the Hebrews focuses more on his current and continuous work in heaven. A contrast is made again between the old and the new, demonstrating again that Jesus is greater and better and superior to any priest that came before him. So in Hebrews 7, verse 28, we see that the law appointed priests in their weakness, that is, with their own sin. But God promised, back in, in Psalm 110, God promised a priest would come like no other. And we see, the writer highlights to us Jesus' work on earth, that Jesus came, he lived in perfect obedience to God, even through suffering. We see in Hebrews 7 that this was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had no need, like, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He didn't need to offer sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. And he didn't have to offer repeated sacrifices for the people because he offered himself once as a perfect sacrifice with forever effect. And that brings us to Jesus' work in heaven. We see again in Hebrews 7 that the former priests, they were many in number because they died, 
as all humans do. But we know Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He entered into the heavenly presence of God and holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is there, is there forever in heaven, Hebrews 9, on our behalf. His perfect sacrifice ever before God on our behalf. We can have assurance our sin is forever dealt with. We are forever forgiven. We have forever security because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And so those trusting in Jesus Christ, as we have been singing Hebrews 6, they have a sure and a steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that is heaven, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. You see, the high priest in the tabernacle went one day a year into the holiest place, God's presence, and he went as a representative of the people. But the people never got in there. Jesus Christ has entered into the presence of God forever, not as a representative, but as a forerunner, meaning we will follow after. And the climax of this whole section on the priesthood of Jesus Christ comes at the beginning of chapter 10. We can approach God right here, right now, with boldness and confidence by the blood of Jesus. And yet we will come closer even again to God's presence in the future too by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the writer wants these Jews to grasp just what they have in Jesus Christ. He says, don't go hankering back to those old ways. Fix your eyes on Jesus and hold fast to him. We're almost at chapter 11. So a lot of the material, chapters 2 up to 8, 9, is, is developing those themes that we have looked at. In chapter 10, we, we see some of what these believers have come through. Chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. We see that um, the writer says, You endured hard struggles with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So here are believers. They have suffered for their faith. They are weary. They are discouraged. The writer says, look, now is not the time to shrink back, but to endure. And you will endure by resting on 
God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And to encourage you to do that, I want you to look at all those in the past who held on to the promise of God. Look at those who kept faith in God to the end. So let's open up chapter 11. And let's look at those from the past and read this through together for our encouragement. Just take from the last verse of chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark For the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea, as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about, in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And now chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, this is the point the writer is getting to all the way through, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those of whom we have just read in chapter 11, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we come around the Lord's table again this morning, we are here looking to Jesus. Or as other translation says, we are here to again fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice who offered himself once for all time to deal with our sin and bring us forever near to God. Let's pray.